We need a global policeman, and the United States is the only reliable and desirable candidate for that job. I think his remarks are divisive, stupid and wrong, and I think if he came to visit our country, I think he'd unite us all against him. Donald Trump is a leader. He will reassert America's position as the nation with the best values to lead the world. When you have the nuclear codes at your fingertips, you can't have a thin skin or a tendency to lash out. You need to be steady and measured and well-informed. If I was an American citizen, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if you paid me. I have great faith in the American people. Look forward to working with whoever gets elected in November. Hello and welcome to The Global Election on Monocle 24. I'm Steve Bloomfield. During the heated run-up to the 2003 war in Iraq, US Defence Secretary Donald Rumsfeld tried to dismiss the opposition of France and Germany. You look at vast numbers of other countries in Europe. They're not with France and Germany on this. They're with the United States. You're thinking of Europe as Germany and France. I don't. I think that's old Europe. Old Europe. As you can imagine, France and Germany didn't take too kindly to that description. Given the small number of liberal democracies in the world, you would think that America and its European allies would make more of an effort to get on. But there have always been, and always will be, tensions. Right now, for instance, the US would like the EU to be tougher on Russia, while the EU would like the US to play a bigger role in the refugee debate. The future for this relationship, though, is unclear. Following the UK's decision to leave the EU, Washington no longer has London to act as a bridge between the two powers. And of course, there's a small matter of who the next US president might be. With Clinton, Europe knows what it's getting. With Trump, well, less so. Welcome to the global election. In a moment, I'll be joined by Quentin Peel, the former foreign editor at the Financial Times, and by Suzanne Lynch, who's Europe correspondent at the Irish Times. But first, Yanis Varoufakis was not your normal finance minister. He was that rare fish, a socialist who remained a socialist in government. His fights with his fellow Eurozone finance ministers were not just about narrow national interest. They were about a much broader economic policy and philosophy. He thought the world should work in a different way and could point to the 2008 global financial crisis as evidence that the normal way of doing things had failed. As you can imagine, his views on the US election are just as thought-provoking. He was certainly more of a Bernie fan than a Hillary supporter. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you very much for joining us today. As a European, does it matter to you who the president of America is? Of course it does, uh, in a variety of ways. Symbolically, aesthetically, and that pertains to this particular bunch of candidates, and primarily in terms of policy, and in terms of uh, uh, the capacity and the impact that the presidential selection is going to have on the capacity of the United States to um, help rebalance uh, the world economy. And when you say to help rebalance the world economy, is it more from an economic point of view that you feel that America has huge influence on events here in Europe? The European Union, against the edicts of its European masters, was designed and implemented by New Dealers in Washington, D.C. For its first 20 years, up until at least 1971, the experiment at forging a closer union amongst European countries was conducted in an American laboratory. 
1971, with the end of Bretton Woods, Europe was uh, effectively expelled from the dollar zone, and it has been struggling ever since to f- find its own equilibrium. It has been managing reasonably well up until 2008 because of the gigantic and burgeoning trade deficits of the United States that were providing the factors in Germany, in France, in the Netherlands with the requisite aggregate demand. Since 2008, Europe is in turmoil because America is no longer capable or willing to play that role. So the role of America in carving out a global equilibrium within which Europe can breathe uh, should not be and cannot be underestimated. Many in Europe have wanted to see the Union as a sort of a rival power group, a rival power base to America over the years. Do you share that view and do you think it has in some ways become a rival power base? Well, Charles de Gaulle based his whole raison d'etre on creating the Franco-German axis as uh, a means by which to undermine the the global dominance and the exorbitant privilege of the United States. But that was always pie-in-the-sky stuff. It was always delusional, not only by the right, like Charles de Gaulle, but also by the center-left. Europe's construction was such that it could not survive without the stabilizing role of the United States. And we can see this today. After 2008's uh, financial implosion, Wall Street lost the capacity to recycle even Europe's surpluses. And the European crisis that we are facing, part of which, of course, is uh, leading to moves like Brexit, is evidence of this. And then turning to this election, we have a rather stark choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. We'll come on to Donald Trump in a moment, but Hillary Clinton is someone whose politics... I imagine you don't really share. I consider her to be a thoroughly unappetizing candidate and a particularly dangerous prospect for uh, geopolitical equilibrium and peace. A, a dangerous prospect? Oh, absolutely. How come? Well, you only have to watch her, watch the video of the mutilation and murder of Gaddafi. Thoroughly despicable person. But anyone who can watch that horrific video, as Mrs. Clinton did, celebrating and punching the air, is a very dangerous person. Her connections with uh, the military establishment on the one hand and Wall Street on the other, her disregard of uh, all uh, conventions of property regarding financing makes her a very unappetizing prospect. Having said that, my recommendation to my American friends is um, in swing states, only in swing states, hold your nose and vote for Clinton. And I assume you say that because you look at the prospect of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is um, not a lunatic in my estimation. He may be, but this is not the issue. Donald Trump is a primal form of fascist. And I mean that not as a term of abuse, but I mean it uh, as a historically grounded comment. If you compare him with Benito Mussolini, you'll find significant uh, similarities, not only in style and in temperament, I don't particularly mind style and temperament, but primarily policies. He is constantly appealing to blue-collar workers, to the ones that have been left behind by an economic crisis, like Mussolini was. He has some policies that seem very progressive. Remember, Mussolini was the one who introduced Social Security in Italy. 
The trade-off for this is increasing authoritarianism, misogyny, racism, and a kind of uh, oeuvre which um, is very, very similar to 1920s Italian fascism. We'll leave it there. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Global Election here on Monocle 24. I'm joined now here in the studio by Quentin Peel here in London and Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Quentin Peel is the former foreign editor and Berlin bureau chief for the Financial Times. Suzanne Lynch is European correspondent for the Irish Times and she's based in Brussels. Quentin Peel, Europe has for some time tried to set itself up as an alternative power base to America but it still relies rather heavily on the US, doesn't it? Oh, yes, I think so. I think that Europe is top priority is actually to keep the Americans engaged in Europe as the ultimate guarantor of security, whether it's guarantor of security vis-a-vis Russia or whether it's the guarantor of security in the Middle East. And even though there's been quite a lot of frustration about, you know, are the Americans getting less interested and actually do they do what we want – At the end of the day, I think that's the bottom line for the Europeans. We don't want them to turn away. And Suzanne Lynch, that issue of keeping America engaged in Europe, with Europe, when you're speaking to leaders across the continent, do you get the sense that there is some trepidation about whether America will be as engaged in Europe if Donald Trump becomes president? Mr. Trump has been very outspoken in his views on the European Union. Back in June, just after the British referendum, he said that he predicted that the EU would break up because of the way it's handling the immigration crisis. He also accused Europe of setting itself up from its very beginnings in kind of competition with the US. He said it would want to beat the US in terms of business, etc. And of course, to an extent, one would say maybe he has a point. After all, the European Union was set up as an economic community. We we think of the peace emphasis all the time in Europe. But of course, it was also uh, the European coal and steel community and very much saw itself as having to compete by the, the ascending powers to the west of it, with the US and also what was happening in Russia. So I do think there are concerns about whether what impact the effect of transatlantic relations would have if Mr. Trump wins in November. Quentin, uh, we're going to talk a bit about trade in a moment. But first of all, I want to look at Eastern Europe, uh, Central Eastern Europe, those countries that are either bordering Russia or close enough to Russia and have had enough first-hand experience of Russia over the last 25 years to want to keep America close to them. They are particularly concerned, aren't they, about the possibilities of a Trump presidency? Yes, I think that what Donald Trump has said about uh, Vladimir Putin, that actually he rather admires him, that he thinks he's a real leader, unlike Barack Obama, who's just a weakling, and uh, that basically he can work with Putin, and he implies that he'd be quite prepared to recognize the Russian annexation of Crimea, and indeed, you know, would basically work pretty closely with him. Now, if you're sitting in Poland, or indeed in the Baltic republics, you get very nervous about that. 
I feel there's a certain degree of ambiguity. I don't think there's any ambiguity in the Baltic republics. They are all very concerned that Putin is putting always more pressure on them and could eventually just walk in if they aren't defended by NATO and properly defended by the US, therefore. In Poland and Hungary, these are two countries that have actually themselves got rather nationalist governments. And I think the ambiguity is that they quite like the nationalism of Trump. They might even like some of them the nationalism of Putin. We heard that from the Slovakian prime minister just recently. So they're a little bit torn, but the bottom line is they're far more threatened by Russia than anybody else. That's the interesting paradox, isn't it, Suzanne? Because what we're seeing in the US with Trump, we're seeing also in countries across Europe, whether that is populist anti-immigrant parties in, in the Nordic nations, or whether it is prime ministers in places like Hungary, or as uh, Quentin just said, in Slovakia, that are rather nationalist. Yes, I think we are seeing a real divide between uh, the older member states of Europe and the West and those newer member states, most of whom joined after 2004. And really this came to boiling point last year with the refugee crisis. It's now a year since the European Commission announced a plan to relocate refugees across Europe. And a lot of Central and East European member states reacted furiously to this. Hungary and Slovakia have brought the European Commission to the European Court of Justice over this plan. And uh, Hungary is to hold a referendum on the 2nd of October about the migration plan. So there's a lot of fury among a lot of Central and East European member states about what it sees as the overreach of Brussels. And as Quentin mentioned there, a kind of resurgent nationalism, a kind of retreat within borders that we saw so symbolically uh, with the erection by Hungary of a border of a razor uh, fence along its border with Serbia last year. So I do think that these kind of ideas that we're seeing brought to the surface in the US presidential election chime very well with some of the themes that are happening domestically, particularly in East Europe. Quentin, on the issue of trade, we're in this slightly strange situation whereby both major candidates in the US, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, have suggested they are opposed to major free trade agreements, whether that is the Trans-Pacific Partnership or even the deal that is being negotiated right now between America and the European Union, this transatlantic agreement known as TTIP. What future do you think that agreement has, regardless of who is elected? Well, I've thought for a long time that TTIP was going to take years to get in place because it's not just that there's a backlash in America. The reason why both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are against these things is that the word trade has bad vibrations with voters now. They see trade, free trade, opening up trade even more as being all part of the pressures of globalization, which is undermining their jobs. Now, you've got the same feelings now in, of all countries in Europe, Germany. I mean, a remarkable backlash against these deals in the greatest trading nation in Europe, which is the most successful trading nation, which is Germany. So I think that we're going to see those put off for the foreseeable future. It's not to say that we don't have pretty open trade relations anyway, but these are all, you know, trying to get rid of not just tariffs. Now we're talking about having common standards. And that's what people get nervous about. It's allowing American GM foods in or allowing 
chlorine-washed chickens was the great one in Germany a year or so ago. Those sort of nervousness actually don't play well with voters. So the irony is, and we may come back to the Brexit question eventually, here we have a British government saying we want lots of trade pacts. Trade pacts aren't popular these days. Suzanne, uh, let's turn to Brexit since Quentin mentioned that. One of the key things that Barack Obama said about Brexit was, well, uh, you know, you're not going to have a trade deal for many, many years if you vote for this, which, as Quentin perhaps now suggests, maybe uh, isn't necessarily such the, the vote winner that perhaps people thought. What do you think Brexit will do for Europe's relationship with America? Will it change it much? I think there are a lot of concerns here in Brussels about the impact of Brexit on the EU's relationship with America. Firstly, as we mentioned there, trade. Um, and as Quentin explained, Britain has for a long time been the leader in terms of a free market, open liberal economy, championing the voice of, of market capitalism, if you like, when it, it believes that other countries like Germany and particularly France are much more protectionist. And I suppose the, the direction in which the US trade deal is going in would underline that fear that many people had, that is the European Union going to go more inwards? Is it going to reject trade now that Britain has gone? And because there are a lot of countries, the Nordic countries, Ireland and Netherlands, etc., who are very much in favour of the EU-US trade deal, and they feel that uh, Europe is giving the wrong message in terms of this. Secondly, uh, Britain's role in, in defence is huge. It's another irony, of course, that at the very time where Europe is losing one of its biggest defence contributors, Britain, along with France, the only permanent member on the UN Security Council, actually... This is allowing other members of the European Union to move forward with a, a common defence strategy for the first time. There's a sense that Britain has been holding it back. Uh, so there are lots of implications, both in terms of trade and in terms of security, about from the British exit. Now, of course, crucially will be the shape of Britain's trade relationship with the European Union when it does leave. Will it remain a member of the single market? Will it remain a member of the customs union? The US, along with every other third country, as they're called, are going to be closely watching that before they commit really to any serious trade negotiations with Britain. I think that there's a, an extraordinary tension in here because, Suzanne, you mentioned the defence aspect of this as well as the trade aspect. Now, the Brexiteers, if you like, in Britain were saying, you know, one, our special relationship with the US, this is going to be part of the big deal. NATO is our real security benchmark. That's what provides security in Europe. Forget about the European Union. That's just talk, talk, talk. But the organization that is most important to us is NATO. Now, you've got Donald Trump in America saying fundamentally, I'm not a great believer in NATO. I think I'm only prepared to put US boots on the ground, if you like, if you pay for it. And if you really pull your finger out in Europe. Aye, he's basically saying to the Baltic republics I was talking about earlier, forget about a guarantee of your security. If you don't pull your weight, then I'm not going to pull my weight. So suddenly, here's Britain saying, we're going to rely on America for more NATO. We're going to rely on America for more trade. If Trump comes in saying he loves Brexit, they might get the opposite. One other thing I just want to ask you, Quentin, about this issue of of Brexit and, and Britain and its relationship with Europe is that the UK has traditionally seen itself as the bridge between America and Europe. 
Now, other people in Europe might say that's not necessarily true. But if Britain is no longer playing that role, do you think that's going to make a difference? Yes, I think it is, because it wasn't just Britain who saw the United Kingdom as the bridge. The Germans did too. I had a long interview with Hans-Dietrich Genscher, the German foreign minister before he died, asking him, why was Germany always wanting the Brits in, whereas the French were much more suspicious? And his answer was, because only if the Brits were in would the Americans trust Europe. Otherwise, they think it was all a French plot. And I was quite fascinated by that because it did rather confirm that the Brits did act as this, if you like, the glue that held the transatlantic relationship together. And I think with the Brits out, and I pray to God that somehow we won't be as out as we look at the moment, nonetheless, if the Brits are out, there's a real danger, I think, of Europe going down a much more America-sceptic route. I would agree with that. Um, I think one of the really interesting uh, developments in transatlantic relations over the last year or so has been uh, tensions over taxation. Now, Brussels, the European Commission, has really clamped down on the tax affairs of US multinationals. Um, most recently, it's a controversial judgment, record judgment, um, that Ireland offered €13 billion Euro worth of illegal state aid to Apple. Now, this has provoked fury from Washington. We had unprecedented interventions by the US Treasury Secretary, complaints to Jean-Claude Juncker that Europe was unfairly targeting US business. And this is a serious concern for the US, it's a serious concern for Washington, because as well as this clampdown on taxation, the European Union, led very much by Germany, is also clamping down on digital privacy. There were a lot of tensions post-Snowden and about uh, the whole regulation of US uh, digital companies and how they treat citizens' data. So these are very sensitive issues between uh, Europe and America at the moment. And I think it, it would be fair to say that Britain would have always been a, a strong supporter in the US or a representative of the US around the EU table on these issues like tax, free trade and digital rights. So the prospect of Britain leaving will definitely be causing concerns in Washington. It's always tricky in these conversations, as, as we've noticed so far in this series, um, to look at what the impact of Hillary Clinton's election will be, because many people assume, oh, well, it will be some sort of continuation of not just the Obama presidency, but probably the last 50 years or so of, of American foreign policy. Quentin, can you see much change, any different shades of differentiation between Hillary Clinton and what we've seen over the last decade? Yes, I think one can. I think that Hillary Clinton is more proactive. She's less, I mean, Obama came in fundamentally on a I'm not going to stir up trouble anywhere sort of policy, whereas I think she's tougher. She's She'll be more demanding on the Europeans to pull their weight. And I think that... Uh, and will the Europeans be willing to listen to her and go along with that? Well, I think they'll be enormously relieved if they don't get Trump, so they'll try and do their best. And they know her quite well. I mean, you know, this is somebody who's been coming to, to Europe a lot, so she's a very familiar person. But having said that, look, the big sweep of things here is that America is all the time focusing more towards the Pacific than it used to, more towards China and this great challenge and less towards Europe, Russia and indeed the Middle East. And so essentially, I think Hillary is saying much more politely and diplomatically, but nonetheless, Europe, get your act together on Russia, get your act together on immigration and get your act more together on the Middle East. 
We'll leave it there. Quentin Peel and Suzanne Lynch, thank you both very much indeed. Next time on The Global Election, we'll be talking about the US and the global economy. Our guests will include the IMF's former chief economist, Ken Rogoff. When you look at the impact that the election of Donald Trump could have on the rest of the world, what are the potential economic impacts that you foresee? The simple and obvious one, and it isn't even the worst, is he's very much in favor of protectionism. And I think that would be a huge step back for the world, for U.S. leadership. It might benefit a few pockets of his supporters, but I think it's a very dangerous trend. Maybe it'll happen under Secretary Clinton also. Well, I mean, let's not be mistaken here. Secretary Clinton has also said that she is against a number of free trade bills that one would have thought she might have been in favor of maybe a year or so ago. Yeah, but that's exactly right. I don't really know where her position is. She's been a centrist and she's been pulled to the left by the primary campaign. Trump's position is very clear. There's also immigration. You talk about building a wall. I'd say quite a bit of implicit racism behind it. Uh, It's not very attractive in an American president. But that's actually not what worries me the most about the economic effects of particularly a Trump victory, which is simply, I don't know what our economic policy is. I don't know what our foreign policy is going to be. He says he is going to make great deals, and I don't think that's a way to approach a world leadership position. That's it for episode three of The Global Election. Episode four will be available next weekend. You can't vote for us, but you can rate us. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating on iTunes? You can also find us on SoundCloud, Spotify and monocle.com slash radio. The Global Election was produced by Bill Lutie and Rhys James. It was edited by Alex Funnell. I'm Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.